0: Welcome to another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord podcast, where you'll learn the secrets commercial landlords would prefer you not know. I'm your host, Jan Gibbons, along with my co-host and experienced commercial real estate broker, Bob Gibbons. That's me. Brought to you by Riata Commercial Realty, where we exclusively represent users of office and warehouse properties. Landlords have representation. Do you? happy to have you back on another episode today's tantalating title is ruled by the ruler no don't don't turn off yet <laughs> it's really a good topic it just sounds a little boring
1: what are we measuring that depends on how boring it is
0: <laughs> don't start <laughs> <laughs> this is a commercial real estate podcast i think we've covered that before well i still like the little tagline you used to use about your foot fetish <laughs> well, take
1: off on that one so i uh, i made the mistake one time in a in a um a networking group business group i was in i you know you everybody get up and you know kind of give their introduction and i got up one time and i said all right people i have a confession i have a foot fetish <laughs> and a bunch of the people were like what <laughs> they got kind of <laughs> freaked out and uh and i said but I have a very unique foot fetish. I like square feet <laughs> and I like people with a lot of square feet. The more square feet they have, the better. <laughs> and, and it was funny because there's one guy, Cliff, who was a member and he remembered that. And I swear years and years later, 10 years later, well, maybe not it,
0: it wasn't just him. I think there were a couple of ladies that remembered it too. They keep talking to it. Why to thank me. you. <laughs> Okay. Why is square feet important? And why are we talking about it today?
1: All right. Well, this all comes from chapter five of my book. So my book is Confessions of a Recovering Landlord. So, you know, I was a landlord guy for 20 years. Then I switched sides to represent the user only 19 years ago. So I wrote this book <laughs> called, Con- why, why is that funny?
0: <laughs> Just the way you said only 19 years ago. So basically 20 years landlord and 20 years tenant rat. <laughs> we're old, let's face it.
1: <laughs> I am a mathematician. So so chapter seven of that book is called Ruled by the Ruler. And the idea of it was, you know, talking about all kinds of stuff related to um, square feet mm-hmm. and, and leases. So I start off that chapter talking about Sydney, who I met at a class of some sort. I think it was a class given by one of the small business development centers uh, in the Dallas area. And she found out that I was in commercial real estate. and she, you know, grabbed me after the the meeting. and she said, "Hey, um I want to see if you can give me some advice. I signed a lease for a retail space, and <clears throat> it was part, you know, it was a bigger space, you know, twenty thousand square feet, let's say and she only leased 2,000 square feet of it, or so she thought. The demising wall had not been built yet. The demising wall is just the wall that separates tenants. And um, she said, we finished doing the space planning for my space. And it turns out that the landlord says, my demising wall is going to be in a slightly different spot than what they had estimated it to be when we signed the lease. So now... Instead of my lease actually being for 2,000 square feet, it's for 2,100 square feet. I was like, oh, okay, 100 square feet. That's not a big deal. She goes, yeah, but you got to understand 100 square feet extra is a lot of money to me. And my my monthly rent is going to be higher, especially when you consider it's not just based on the, you know, on the base rent, but it's also on the, the operating expenses, the the triple nets that are of, of all the operating expenses that are passed through to the tenant. And so she was freaking out about that. And she wanted to know, you know, what, what can she do about that? How can she avoid that extra cost? And I said, well, you probably can't, you know, your lease probably has language in it that says that the square footage is an estimate and the final number will be determined by the landlord's architect. And that's what it'll be. And I said, I, you know, if the demise mall hadn't been built, I don't really know what other option there might've been other than to have had the architect come out there and, you know, determine what it is when you sign the lease and be hundred percent clear and sure on where it is. This is particularly an, uh, an issue, not just when you have a space that, is going to be demised and you don't know exactly where the demising wall is going to turn out to be. It's also a problem, especially when it's a brand new building being constructed that hasn't been finalized yet because, you know, there's things that change as you're constructing a building, right? Um, hey, we have to turn this a little differently than we thought because of whatever condition on the property. So, you know, and hers was a brand new building that was under construction when she signed her lease, etc. So, She was just kind of freaking out about it. So bottom line is the question became, what do we, what does she do? And I said, you know, other than talking to your tenant rep that you used uh, and your attorney that you used, um, (laughs) I don't really know that there's anything I can tell you. And you're laughing because you're way ahead of me, right?
0: Well, (laughs) You're making a point and I'm just serving it up here.
1: <laughs> Silver platter, meet <laughs> Bob. Um, yeah, she hadn't used a tenant rep. She just called the name on the sign. And uh, of course that person represented the landlord and she had not used a an attorney. She just signed the lease as it was handed to her by the by the landlord, not knowing. I mean, it was her first time ever doing a, a lease, right? And she was a first time business owner. And she'd gotten an SBA loan. And so she didn't know that she can negotiate, that she can have an attorney. She can have a corporate real estate advisor, tenant rep on her side. So she was unfortunately just stuck and uh, she was just going to have to live with it. And uh, so it was a sad story, but it kind of brings into this whole discussion, you know, what is the significance of square feet and are there different kinds of square feet? and the answer of course is yes Um uh, so round feet
0: triangle feet
1: um yeah well
0: parallelogram feet
1: there there actually are all those things but <laughs> um spaces are shaped in all kinds of ways you can lease a space that's square rectangular triangular circular you name it um polygrammal polygonal LOL, I'm not sure how to,
0: that's something you have surgery for, <laughs> or,
1: or at least a cream medicated, medicated cream for. <laughs> so, you know, if we if anybody ever listens to this, which I think is highly doubtful, um, hopefully we'll get some comments back on this. But, uh, anyway,
0: well, I also want to interject that you're talking about new build, but we just recently had this happen on a fairly old building on a client that we were renewing and we were arguing over square footage and how that played out. So it's not just new build.
1: Well, and you're right. The square footage can be something that can become an issue. So let's, let's start off first with sort of explaining what square footages are uh, and the different types of them are. So in most buildings, there are, let, and let's make a distinction between, let's say, a single tenant building versus a multi-tenant building um, and also the difference between a building that has common area and a building that doesn't. So a single tenant building, well, the entire building is leased by one company. So whatever that square footage is, is the square footage. So let's say the building is, you know, 70,000 square feet. You know, you you've measured it. Uh, the, the architect has measured it and, you know, did 70,000 feet sort of end of story, right? Well, who determines what that square footage is? Well, as I just said, it's usually the architect, either the architect who was uh, the architect of record when the building was built, or it could be a new architect that the landlord hired to measure the building after they bought the building. Uh, I've mentioned on the podcast many times that the last company I worked for, where I was an asset manager for an owner investor, we remeasured every office building we bought over, you know, the whole time I was with the company and we wanted to have the most accurate square footage and laser measuring devices are far more accurate than the devices that were used in the 80s when the buildings, most of the buildings we bought were built. So we found that we, the buildings were actually bigger than what we had uh, thought they were when we bought them. So it is typically going to be done by an architect or a space planner or a space measuring company. Um,
0: Why wouldn't you measure the building before you bought it?
1: And um, that's
0: smart. You didn't, but I would normally think I would want to make sure I'm paying because it's priced per square foot.
1: Well, it's priced, you know, we, we think of everything in terms of square feet, you know, the price per square foot, the rent per square foot, the Expenses per square foot, yeah. all that kind of th- thing. So you're right, uh, and some people will measure it before closing. And I'm sure that some of the buildings that we bought were measured beforehand. But <clears throat> you know, sometimes it couldn't get done until after, or we didn't we didn't start measuring buildings for a few years um, after I joined the company. So we went back and measured the buildings that we had already bought as well, because um, that was just a new thing that we started doing. But yeah, I mean, verifying what you're being told by a landlord or by a seller would be ideal. In a lot of cases, those buildings, we had CAD files um, available to us. And so we had computer-aided design. So it's a a computer system for measuring and um, uh, designing uh, buildings. Mm -hmm. So architects use those all the time. So anyway, um, so back to the thing. So, the architects measure the building. Well, how do they know what the standard for that is? Do they measure from the inside of the wall, the outside of the wall? You know, how do what if there's an overhang, um, you know, for the front door and it's kind of recessed? Um, how do, how do who decides all that? Well, BOMA. that's <laughs> BOMA, exactly. So, BOMA is Building Owners and Managers Association. Um, and boma is the the entity that in the United States anyway, pretty much decides what the standard is, and that may change over time, and they will issue a new uh, sort of ruling or standard, just okay. like edicts, <laughs> yes, so just like the financial accounting standards board, or FasB um uh, determines what is gap accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, uh, BOMA determines what the way to measure uh, where uh, space is, office buildings, warehouse buildings, retail buildings. Um, There are exceptions though, like in New York, New York sort of has their own way of doing it, New York City. Uh, So, you know, it depends on where you are. Some leases will actually quote the standard We are going to be held accountable to the BOMA 1996 or 2006 or whatever uh, standard of measuring the building. Um, Most leases, however, these days stipulate a square footage. So they'll say, you know, the tenant and the landlord agree and stipulate that the square footage is 70,000 square feet and is not subject to being remeasured at any later date in the deal. So as long as that lease is in effect, that's going to be the square footage, and doesn't matter who remeasures what. Too bad that's what it's going to be. Uh, so, um, so the square footage is determined by the architect, which is determined, which is using the Boma standard. So a single tenant building, that tenant's paying for the whole thing. As soon as you have a multi-tenant building, now you got to split it, and so now let's say it's a warehouse or a retail where there is no common area. So you're just putting in a, a wall in the middle of a space. So you have a 70,000-foot space. You put a wall down the middle. Should be 35,000 square feet each, right? Well, what if you put the wall somewhere else that's not in the middle? Or are you going to put many walls in that 70,000 square feet? You can have 10 tenants. Well, the demising wall, <clears throat> so you measure to the midpoint of the demising wall. Well, can a tenant use the to the midpoint of the demising wall? Well, all right, if that demising wall is you know, say six inches thick, well, they they each have three inches that they're not sort of really able to use, but it's determined, it's assumed that it is considered usable square footage to the tenant. And so in these kinds of buildings where there is no common area, the usable square footage, the amount they actually get to use is the same as the rentable square footage. Rentable being what you pay on. Well, now let's switch sides and say, what if there's common area? So the best example of this is a common area, or a multi-tenant office building. You walk into the first floor of the office building, there is a lobby. Maybe there's a security guard sitting there. Um, maybe there's a, a little sort of tenant lounge area with some seating. And um, then you go into- Public bathrooms. Public bathrooms, restroom. I mean, I mean, uh, um, mechanical rooms. So like there's a room for the electrical for the air conditioning, mechanical equipment, for the phone room, uh, maybe there's a janitor's closet. So there's all these things that maybe they're behind a key, but they're actually all for the benefit of the tenant. And so those are called common areas. And those common areas have to be allocated to the tenants throughout the building. So if you have a hundred thousand square foot building with 10,000 square feet of common area, well, that is a 10% load factor or a 10% add-on factor. There's a lot of names for the factor, but bottom line is the usable square footage of the building is 90,000 square feet. The rentable is 100,000 square feet because you've allocated the 10,000 square feet of common across the entire building. And so each tenant pays their share of the common area load or the add-on factor. So whenever a tenant comes in and says, well, I measured my space, and I've only got six thousand square feet, not seven thousand square feet. What's going on? Well, number one, they're measuring to the inside of the walls, not to the midpoint of the walls. And the midpoint is just for the demising walls; it's not for the exterior walls. Exterior walls, you you may you know measure to the outside of the wall, uh, and then you also have to add in the the uh, common area factor. So anybody that goes in and measures to the inside of a wall is always gonna be confused as to the square footage of a space. So all these things come into play in trying to determine what you're actually gonna pay for. And whenever you start evaluating one building versus another, well, now you have the problem of, well, one building may have a 10% factor, another may have a 15% factor, another one may have a 20% factor. And that is what determines the efficiency of a building. Mm so the efficiency is typically you know if i'm going to be able to lease 9000 square feet of usable space in three different buildings what is the rentable square feet in each of those buildings because that's what i'm paying the rent on mm-hmm. so assuming that you have the same rental rate in each of those buildings the building with the the lowest factor is going to be the lowest cost now that also may however come back to bite you because what kind of building do you want to be in
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know do what you want to be in a...
0: trying to project for your employees your clients
1: exactly it a lot of its image mm-hmm. so you you went to the very most important thing first so if i'm want to, if i'm going to be a let's say a a, a consulting company I'm, I'm going to be mckenzie or bain or boston consulting group one of these that They want a really, really high image, not only for their clients, but also for the consultants that they hire. They want to hire the best coming out of Ivy League schools. Um, They want a really impressive building. Well, what do impressive buildings have? Big lobbies, lots of amenities. And a lot of times those amenities are considered common areas. So if you have a tenant lounge, that's a common area. If you have a common conference room, uh, that's available to the tenants or a training room, that could be considered common area. So now all of a sudden with the race among landlords to have all the coolest common areas, rooftop lounge, um, you know that could increase your common area factor. So now instead of it being 15%, all of a sudden it's 20 or 22 or even more. Um, you know, I had a building when I was on the, the landlord side where we remeasured the building, and we thought the common area factor was probably around twenty percent. Oh no, it was thirty percent. I think it was actually over thirty uh, percent because it had these giant. It was only a three-story building. It had a giant lobby, and it, and then it had these giant atriums that were landscaped with with fountains in them on each wing of the building. So, I mean, it was an enormous amount and it was only 130,000 foot building, we thought. And so, you know, we were, we were like, all right, we've remeasured this thing. The, the actual factor is over 30%. The building in reality is now call it 150,000 square feet, not 130,000 square feet. So we technically could have allocated the extra 20,000 square feet among all those tenants. And as leases expired or as we leased up new space, we could have tried tried to get that. But the problem was smart tenant rep agents are going to evaluate one building versus the other based on the efficiency we just talked about. And we knew that for a market rental rate, we were suddenly going to be far more expensive than the other buildings because the actual amount of space of usable space a company was was going to be able to lease. For, uh, from us was going to be a lot more expensive on a usable square foot basis. So it's smart for a company or tenant rep to evaluate buildings, not just based on how many rentable square feet a tenant's going to lease, or what's the rental rate, but what is the rentable square footage? And then you look at that and say, all right, We apply the rental rate to the rentable square footage, but then we divide that by the usable square footage to determine what is the cost per usable square foot. That's really where you get down to the real best number to evaluate one building versus another, assuming the buildings are apples to apples.
0: I don't like the term usable though, because I hear tenants say, I don't use that. I don't use that feature that's immaterial to me. And I'm like, well, okay, then you should have factored that in when you looked at this building to begin with.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just.
0: For some tenants, it's going to be really important. And other tenants won't care. So they need to know that going in.
1: They do. And, but it's also, hopefully they have clearly defined and the, the corporate real estate advisor has led the client through a conversation of what you talked about earlier, which is an image. So what kind of image do you want? What kind of building do you want? What kind of amenities are you expecting? And if you know that going in, then hopefully you're comparing comparable buildings. You're not comparing some, you know, 1972 suburban office building in the worst submarket with no amenities to some class AA building in uptown with all the latest stuff. You know, those that would not make any sense. On a lot of on a lot of levels, not just usable or rentable. So that's this is where you get into the significance of square feet and how is it measured and add on factors and all this kind of thing. So the and what's also interesting is some buildings will take the amenities like the conference rooms and the tenant lounges and these kinds of things that I talked about. And we'll consider those common areas and pass those through um, as a higher common area factor and other buildings won't. And so the distinction a lot of times is let's let's just take the example of a fitness center or a common conference room. Well, does the landlord charge for the use of those things? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, they charge for that, then that shouldn't be common area. Because they're getting paid for the use of those things. Double dipping. Double dipping, exactly. But well, we... another
0: thing that the tenant has to think about is I was showing space to a client of ours the other day and we were looking at a common conference room that could be booked, but you can't keep your stuff in there. You have to carry all your stuff in. That was oh, yeah. them. And then the other thing is, you just pay for that as you need whereas if it was inside their space they're paying for it 24/7. Right. So outsourcing something that you need but is still in the same building is a great way to look at it as well for something like a conference room.
1: You're absolutely right. I mean if you're if your company is only going to have a once a month training wow. session that's going to need 50 people in the room, well don't put that in your space wow. if the building has a common conference room that can seat 50 people it'd be mm-hmm. better to spend you know 300 500 whatever uh a month to do that or, or to go to a hotel and rent that room even though that's gonna be a lot more money um it may be cheaper to do that than to have that in your space and be paying whatever the rent per square foot is on that all the time mm-hmm. um, but back to my point on common areas you know whether or not the landlord charges for the use of those rooms um uh, should determine whether or not it's considered common area if the fitness center is free to all tenants and their employees that's common area it's equally available to everybody but if i have to pay for it well now some of my employees will pay for it and some won't some companies will provide it for their employees some won't that's not common anymore so is it
0: why they get around that in some cases is it's common area you can go in there But if you're going to have a uh, personal trainer or if you're going to join this class, that's an add-on.
1: Well, that yeah, that's additional service. It itself
0: is there for you,
1: yeah. But that's no different than what's considered an above-standard service for a lot of buildings. So, for example, if um, if a building has a security guard and uh, that security guard is there in the lobby and patrols the building 24-7, that's for the benefit of all the tenants. But now one tenant is going to have a party, and they want extra coverage of security guards because it's going to occur. The party is going to go after six o'clock when the building normally shuts down. The building is going to be left unlocked for those guests to come and go at, at will. And they're going to be there until nine o'clock. Well, so they, they should be required to have extra security guards on staff to help with that. And that's for the benefit of that only only that one company. Therefore, that one company should pay the incremental cost of that. That's an above standard service, and that's the way I would look at that. Uh, what you just described as well
0: mm-hmm. for the gym, yeah.
1: Um. So, so you let's... were
0: talking about how the example of Sydney had done this by not using a corporate tenant rep to help her, right? How would she have known that when she called from the get? She was just driving by and looking at a sign and calling someone. How does an inexperienced tenant know from the get that person's representing the landlord? I need someone to represent me.
1: That's a good question. I mean, if you don't know something exists, how do you know you you need it and you would benefit from it? And that, that's sort of a chicken and egg problem, right? Um Hopefully, when she called that leasing agent on the sign, the leasing agent not only sent her the information about brokerage services form that they are legally required to provide, but that they also explained what that form was. So the the problem is, is that a lot of the times they will send that or it'll just be the last page of a flyer, but nobody explains what that really means. And the whole point of that form is so that tenants, clients in any real estate transaction where there is a licensed real estate agent involved, that that real estate agent delivers that to all parties and explains who he or she represents. Mm
0: -hmm. And go ahead.
1: Well, I was just gonna say, and whenever they explain who they represent, which in the case of the leasing agent on the sign would say, I'm representing the landlord, my fiduciary responsibility is to the landlord. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that'll send off a light bulb in the mind of the tenant who says, wait a minute, does that mean I should have somebody represent me?
0: As I recall, you came into a deal after someone had already done this, like a Sydney. They called the landlord, they maybe have seen the space, then they found out, oh, I need representation you came on and the landlord tried to cut you out and said, no, this isn't going to happen. If I remember right, you said, okay, well, just go ahead and show me where you told them who you represented and that you did present them with an IBS. And next thing I know you had a commission agreement.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't quite that, that exact scenario. It was really more one in which um, one of our clients got a little ahead of herself and went and looked at a property (laughs) Without including me because she, she was just so excited about this property. She called on the sign and the guy's like, Oh yeah, I'm just down the street. And so he ran over and showed her the space. And then she called me and said, Hey, I'm, I'm really interested in this one. I was like, Oh, so you went ahead and looked at it. And she said, yeah. I said, okay. So I called the broker and you know, the, the leasing agent Mm -hmm. and the leasing agent said, Oh, well, we're, I'm going to represent her on that building. I was like, what are you talking about? And she, he said, well, I showed her the space. I said, but it's your listing. He said, no, it's my broker's listing. <laughs> and I said, okay. So did you show her the IABS form and uh, explain to her who you represented? And he's like, hold, please. <laughs> <laughs> and next thing I know his broker came on the line and let's just say she was the ice queen. She was not happy about this conversation. And um, and so what was funny is that she she knew the law and she knew that he should have given her an IABS, should have explained who he represented. And he should have said, I want to represent you. At which point she would have said, oh, I've already got Bob at Briotto Commercial Realty representing me. And that would have cleared all this up in an in a instant. But... They didn't do that. He thought he was going to be able to find a way to weasel his way in to represent her, even though his broker was the person that had the listing and had the fiduciary responsibility to the landlord, which means you cannot be in what's called an intermediary capacity where the broker is on one side of the transaction and one of the broker's agents is on the other side of the transaction Mm -hmm. because that agent is theoretically being supervised by the broker. So those two people cannot be on opposite sides of a transaction. If they're going to work as an intermediary situation, then the, you know, that guy that showed her the building could have been representing her. And then another agent in the office, but not the broker could be assigned to represent the landlord. And then that's what's called an intermediary with assignments. And this is really where the problem comes in with a lot of the big shops where, you have somebody from, you know, pick a company, JLL, CBRE, Cushman, Wakefield, whatever. So you have one agent representing the landlord and another agent in the same shop representing the tenant, you know, are those two parties being fully informed as to who represents whom and that they're now in an intermediary capacity? Um, I, I can't say for sure. And certainly I would not make a blanket statement, but I would bet that often the answer to that would be no, but We're kind of off the subject of square feet, but, um, but it's relevant. You're right.
0: Anytime I can show the importance of having a tenant rep broker, I'm (laughs) going to serve that up to you, Uh,
1: especially Um, a Riata commercial realty real estate (laughs) advisor. Um, anyway, any other things we ought to talk about?
0: Well, just were there any other main takeaways or summarization of chapter seven in the book that, um, you wanted to highlight. And also I just want to make sure our listeners knew that if they'd like a free copy of chapter seven, if they email me at Jan at Texas tenant rep.com, I'll email it to them.
1: Well, look at you.
0: Yeah. Always be selling.
1: <laughs> Always be providing value. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I would say if you look at uh, chapter seven, sort of the, 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 the big chapter takeaways, if you mm-hmm. will. Number one, know the difference between rentable and usable. Uh, you don't need to know exactly how it's calculated necessarily, but know the difference. Uh, and determine- know what you're
0: paying for and what you're using, just what those terms really, really mean.
1: So uh, number two, determine the type of building and emittings you want, and then compare similar buildings. Don't mm-hmm. be apples to oranges. Number three, calculate the rent as a total dollar amount, as a dollars per square foot rentable and dollars per square foot usable, but also dollars per employee. Because if you look at the building, you know, what really matters to a company? If I can go put, you know, 75, tenant, uh, employees in that building, but I'm only going to be able to put 72 in that building. Well, what's the cost per employee of each of those situations? That may be the most relevant metric. Uh, Number four, stipulate the square footage of your space and the total building and the lease. I had mentioned that previously. Don't just stipulate the square footage of the space. Also show the square footage of the building so you know what your pro rata share is that you're going to be responsible for when they pass through the operating expenses. So don't, don't subject yourself to the risk of a different number coming in. I mean, that number could come to your, your benefit if they come up with a smaller square footage, but let's be honest, if a landlord remeasures a space and it's smaller, they're not going to tell you. It's only going to come up if it's bigger. So don't subject yourself to that. So stipulate it. And then the last thing is if you lease part of a larger space, allow for only a single remeasurement, you know, only at that one point in time, can it be remeasured and not again and again and again over the life of the, of the lease term, because, you know, it's possible that if you do a 10 year lease, that building could sell a time or two or three during your own, uh, your uh, tenancy. Mm-hmm. Don't let every new landlord that walks in the door, remeasure and throw out a different number.
0: Now, of course, this is not applicable when you expand your space or redact your space, you, you change your space, your, your footprint in that building.
1: All of yeah. that is subject. Yeah, all that's subject to a, a measurement of that additional space. And, and I'll tell you that, you know, whenever I was an asset manager and we had remeasured a building uh, when the building was bigger or the space was bigger, anytime something significant changed in that um, lease situation, we would try to adjust the square footage to whatever we determined to be the correct number. So if a tenant came to us for and said, Hey, I'm going to renew my lease. Well, we would try to, you know, implement the new square footage. If they wanted to expand, we would not only use that new square footage for the expansion space, but we would also try to adjust it for the existing space. And, you know, that didn't always happen because sometimes they would say, well, that means I'm going to have to pay an extra whatever. We would actually, let's just say, you know, the tenant really, we wanted the tenant to stay, but we we knew that they weren't going to pay both an increased rental rate and based on an increased square footage, we might say, all right, we'll apply the the square foot, the, the rental rate to the old square footage, but we're going to go ahead and show the new square footage. And that will result in a slightly smaller rental rate per square foot because we're using a bigger square footage, but it was important to get that bigger square footage into the lease so that the next time the lease renews, or we go to sell the building, we got the bigger square footage, which is more valuable.
0: Oh. Well, if you would like a copy of this book that includes Chapter 7, it's available on Amazon.
1: Confessions of a Recovering Landlord. Get you on.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. We appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder to send in questions to see if we can stump Bob
1: not going to happen.
0: We really appreciate your taking the time to tune into this episode. We would love it if you would give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And if you are on our YouTube channel, we would love to read your feedback in the comment section. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified when we publish new episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Bye.